Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Monk Yun Ro, meaning soft cloud. He's a Taoist monk, author, and Tai Chi master, called the new Alan Watts for his teachings, and the Zen version of Gabriel Garcia Marquez for his writings. Taoist monk Yun Ro, formerly known as Arthur Rosenfield, received his academic education at Yale, Cornell, and University of California, and was ordained in an official ceremony at the Chunyang Taoist Temple in Guangzhou, China. His work has appeared in Vogue, Vanity Fair, Parade, Newsweek, Wall Street Journal, WebMD, Fox Business News, and numerous other websites and newspapers. His more than 20 award-winning nonfiction books and novels of magical realism focus on philosophy, history, compassion, and culture. He began his formal martial arts training in 1980 and has studied with some of the top Chen-style Tai Chi grandmasters in China. And in 2011, he was named Tai Chi Master of the Year at the World Congress on Qigong and Traditional Chinese Medicine. July of 2014, Yun Ro joined the heads of the five Tai Chi families on the diocese, representing America, tai, American Tai Chi at the International Tai Chi Symposium in Louisville, Kentucky, which is not where you would expect that to happen. Uh, at least that's not where I expected it to happen. And he currently teaches in Southern Arizona, South Florida, and around the world. So, all right. I mean, Yun Ro is really, I mean, it just his bio sort of lends to uh, the type of character that he is. He's written a number of books and wanted to have him on the show to dig into Taoism and to really understand practical Taoism. What is it? What are a few of the concepts? How do we start to utilize Taoism in our in our day-to-day life, regardless of your your faith, regardless of what you might practice or not practice or believe in or not believe in? Uh, this is just a really great conversation about what Taoism is. But then we have a, a, a pretty specific lens. So I've really wanted to uh, tie Taoism into the current culture and climate and what's happening in our society today. So we talk a lot about how some of these principles are applicable to the chaos and the crisis that seems to be unfolding in our culture. So uh, this is a really fun conversation. He's, he's, he's pretty damn funny, actually, to be, to be honest with you. He's very uh, sharp. And uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation for a number of reasons. Uh, he shares some great stories and is, to say the least, a prolific uh, storyteller. So I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. And without any further delay, please welcome the monk, Yun Ro. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. So... Before we dive into the topic and the content for today, um, although this will certainly be a part of it, I have to ask you to tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So, you know, there are, I, I have more than a few because, you know, I go by storyteller monk. So there are uh, stories are kind of my life. And when you asked me that earlier and to, to think about it, I, you know, I had quite a few come in, but I think one that really fits with what you want to talk about today, which is Taoism, comes from uh, my ordination as a monk uh, years years and years ago in in Guangzhou and what some people still call Canton, right, southern China. And I was in a monastery, a temple there, a very famous one, 
being ordained by a by an abbot uh, who is a powerful, influential man politically and spiritually in in southern China. And the ordination took a few days, or, you know, the overall process. <clears throat> but at one point, as I was kneeling in front of him and preparing to receive my my robe and my name, I, I suddenly felt that I was an imposter. I suddenly felt that, you know, I'm not Chinese. I grew up in New York City and I've spent my life different parts of the world, but I'm not Chinese. I'm not going to live in that monastery like the other monks because such a thing, not necessarily that I wouldn't like to do that, but not feasible. And and I expressed this to him. I said, you know, I feel like an imposter. And he said, why? And I said, well, I look at my monk brothers here and I see that they're cleaning the toilet and they're swabbing the decks here and planting the garden. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to be doing that. And he looked at me, he said, uh, how long have you been interested in Taoism? I said, oh, probably when I read about it, about 10 years old in my mother's, my mother's garden. And so at that time, now that's a half a century ago or more, but, but in the time of, of this story, it was a little bit less. He said, oh, you know, so 30, 40 years. I said, yeah. He said, and did you have a lot of support in that pursuit? I said, no, don't be silly. What do you mean a lot of support? He said, well, I mean, did your family, you know, were they supportive of your interest in Taoism and wanting to become a monk? And I said, uh, no. He said, what about your friends? What about your the people around you in school or in your workplace or anything else? I said, mm, ridicule mostly. Um, he said, uh, or at best, a roll of the eye. Uh, and I said, although I, I can't say that I always knew I wanted to become a monk, but I used to watch a TV show called Kung Fu, and that that show had flashbacks to the Shaolin Temple, which is Buddhist, not Taoist. But anyway, I loved to see the equanimity of those monks. And when I was a little boy, I used to watch them, and everybody was watching for the ass kicking, and I was watching for the monks. I wanted to see what kind of a guy would, you know, be blind and in robes and walking around, but able to hear a cricket break wind at a hundred paces or kick butt up and down the the mountain and never be able to see anything and still be just like the coolest comics. And I thought, wow, that might be a different, different way to live than what I'm seeing growing up in New York City. So he listened to me through all this and he said, so you came to this from a culture across the, the world and you had no support for doing it. And I said, well, I had no support until I found my primary teacher. And of course, then I had a lot of support. Um, but if you're asking about sort of social and familiar, I mean, absolutely not. And he said, the guys that are here mostly come here for seven years. And uh, they all come from rich families because in China, if you're going to be a monk like this, we're not renunciates. So most of them have their Mercedes parked in the back of the temple and they, they put on their gold Rolexes when they leave and they go home to their families. And, and the reason for that is that we don't have a society that supports this kind of thing. So if you if you want to be a monk in Chinese culture, you got to go to work and support your family and you got to kick in and, you know, hustle and, and get ahead. And, it, you know, the only way that you would not need to do that and be able to come and be a monk is if you come from a family that's already wealthy and made it. 
He said, so I just don't want you to misunderstand about the other monks. Some of them are, you know, decide to live here and devote their lives to it. And some of them have been here for their whole lives, but not all of them by any means. And anyway, the commitment is seven years and yours is more like 40 or 50 years. So, and then he, you know, pinned me with this gaze he has. And he said, so please don't consider yourself an imposter. And I, and I have to say that even as I recount this to you, I have trouble not crying because I burst into tears at this. It was like a huge moment. So if you ask me, you know, sort of something that helped to define who and what I am these days, that, that that's a good one. Mm. Oh, it's powerful. I feel, I feel like what you're sort of pointing to is this sense of belonging that so few of us really feel you know i think as as social media comes on the rise people are more connected than ever before but but oftentimes more lonely you know less connected to a a sense of belonging you know and i think that's sort of that's sort of like one of the primary wounds that many of us carry is this this wound of of not belonging so what what does uh, I mean, you know, obviously that story is 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 powerful. I think a lot of people can understand that for their own lives and and feel like imposters. But how do we start to work on that? What does Taoism say in terms of becoming someone who doesn't feel like an imposter? So one thing he said to me too that was part of that story, but I, I omitted, but I'll give now is that he said, you know. I tell the monks what to do. I say, you know, you go work in a kitchen, you clean the toilets, you garden, you know, and then they change jobs or whatever, but they get it all done and keep the place up. Some of them are bricklayers, we're restoring. But he said, in your case, you know, you had a big television show and you write all these books. And he said, I I just want you to put Taoist ideas out into the West. So, you know, what we're doing right now is what he asked me to do. And And he just looked at me and said, you know, they can't do this. And he said, and by the way, I don't care if you call it Taoism. He said, it's not necessary to call it Taoism. It's in that way, you know, if I were a Buddhist monk, I would be talking about the Buddhist teachings. If I were a Christian monk, I would be talking about the, the teachings of Jesus Christ. But in this case, the ideas of Taoism are linked to nature. And in fact, you could say that Taoism was the original form of environmentalism because it's it's a very it's a totally non-dual philosophy which simply means in non-philosophical speak that everything is connected and and one and I'll address your question about you know sort of connection in a second but just let me finish this thought so so if 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 everything just comes from observing nature, the founders of Taoism were guys who were not distracted by CNN.com and a mailbox full of emails about the slow burn of the apocalypse and on and on. What they did all day was to observe the natural world. And they took their cues from the no BS, unfiltered, no bias, unfolding of the world. Much truer, much more tangible, much more real, not only than the online world, but than the physical world that most of us live these days. And so what seems to be great wisdom 
And, 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 you know, it is great wisdom, but it's not only because they were perspicacious fellows and gals who came up with this stuff, but because their source material was so pure and unadulterated. Regarding the connection to each other and to the world, I, I was thinking about this this morning when I was getting up. This is what Taoist monks do, especially if they're authors and teachers, is that we think about these things all the time. It's sometimes a little pathological, I suppose. But anyway, you know, I was thinking that whether the world really is in the toilet right now any more than it has been in other periods of history, or that, you know, the, the presence of the digital world is giving us that impression, not only because of the slant and filtration of media, but also because of the way, the immediacy with which it puts us in touch one with the other. And, and I think that the answer is that there is a process going on. And the very first thing that any spiritual seeker encounters is the recognition that there is something going on. And whether you're sitting in a rowboat or a fishing boat offshore waiting for the fish to bite, watching the sun come up and watching the wind make little waves and patterns on the water, or whether you're in the forest and listening to the rustle of leaves, you are always aware that something is going on. We're not in a frozen state. There's movement, there's change. So Planet Earth has a lifespan. Human beings as individuals have lifespans. Human beings as a species have a lifespan. We may be coming close to the end of it. And the current system, what scientists would call the ecosystem, the way that living things and sentient beings interact and interrelate on the planet, also has a trajectory. And a trajectory implies a beginning and an end. So whilst we can certainly say that things have been bad before. You know, if you were in Pompeii a few thousand years ago, you'd wake up with a big problem. If you were in Hiroshima, you know, you would wake up with a big problem. We may wake up to uh, some kind of October surprise. We're recording this, you know, a little before October. So there are, there are real things going on, but there is also this underlying trajectory of things. And it's not the same as it was. Most of our problems are simply the result of destroying the planet like a cancer destroys a body. And we're doing that. We're vastly overpopulated and we're mimicking a cancer in so many ways. And at the same time, you know, there's this spiritual feeling that something is going on. So the community that we create that you asked me about, back to that, is not the kind of community that provides the succor and the wisdom and the resource that people really need in a time like we have now, because it is greatly filtered. And because we are mostly not actually physically together, we are missing all kinds of cues that are part of, important part of our communication. The way we relate to each other has to do with pheromones 
and subtle changes of expression and other chemicals that exude from our body and the halo of microorganisms that follows us wherever we go and the aura that some people can see and the sound and timber of the voice and touch and sharing things like food that we, we can't do through these media. So these media lend us a very, very poor substitute for this kind of thing. And American anti-culture, I don't call it American culture, but, um, you know, you're from Canada, so perhaps you understand this point of view, but, you know, we are a very young country here and we were founded on some interesting ideals as well as genocide and the desire not to pay taxes and the desire to have our religion be the only one we had to deal with and all kinds of other things that aren't really so laudable. Um, But, you know, we haven't had time. A country like China has been around 5,000 years, relatively uninterrupted with, you know, Taoism and Confucianism and and some Buddhism guiding the way and cohering. We don't have the kind of depth that they have in other cultures. So we are unfortunately being led um, especially easily astray because our, our anchor is not too heavy. That's a really, I mean, that's a really powerful way of putting it. I think it, it seems as though part of what you're alluding to and part of what I've been witnessing, and I think many of us have been witnessing, is this sort of strip mining of human connectivity and just humanity you know, out of, out of our day-to-day lives. And the more that we live virtually, the less that we live in a, in a sort of connected manner, I think is what you're sort of saying. And so, and I think that a lot of this has to, a lot of this feeds into the chaos that we see ensuing because it's so much easier to treat somebody as if they aren't human when you're sitting behind a keyboard and you have no interaction with them whatsoever. And so I think if I could summarize what you're saying, it's almost like the the Taoist view is that we extract and we extrapolate how we should operate based on nature. But if we're not interacting with nature, it's very hard to extrapolate how we should be interacting with the world. Is that roughly accurate or how would you? You're a smart guy and you, you put it very well. Um, I, I like your strip mining uh, description. I, I might steal it. Um, you heard it here first. Um, <laughs> so humans are, are, are like computers. And there's a lovely saying in program and garbage in and garbage out. Right? So we, we, we process the things that come into our lives and, and come across our radar. And this is why, you know, maybe a piece of advice or counsel or inspiration that I'd like to share with your audience Mm -hmm. is to please be very careful about what you put in to your processor. And you hit the nail on the head when you just said that, you know, when we're disconnected from nature, we we have um, impeded input, diminished input. So the more we process what we're reading and seeing and hearing online, as opposed to the direct experience of living, helping someone age, feeding a child, taking care of your pet turtle or your dog, right? Um, you know, I, I, keep, I keep some pet turtles and my son, who's a 
biologist and a scientist and a naturalist who loves to be outside, you know, sometimes takes me to task for confining wild creatures. And, and, I, and I say, well, I'm sensitive to that argument. And I excuse my behavior on the basis of the fact that the only kind of turtles I keep are ones that are now extinct in the wild and on the verge of disappearing from planet Earth. So I'm part of efforts to save them. But that's from their point of view and what's beneficial to them. But what's beneficial to me and what people presumably have from raising children and taking care of their pets, whatever they are, is that the exercise of care and compassion to get up from your computer and go deal with a living thing and, you know, clean its excrement and make sure it has the right food and make sure it's comfortable and has shelter and temperature is good and on and on and on. The, the act of once we divorce from nature, the input that I referred to when I said about programming garbage in and garbage out, everything that we put in that is not real and natural is like spiritual and intellectual junk food or worse. It's like eating cardboard candies. And we've become accustomed to this kind of mental and intellectual and philosophical and spiritual nutrition to the point where we are actually sadly and grievously malnourished when it comes to understanding who and what we really are. And unfortunately, you know, the digital world and the virtual worlds are, are not helping that problem. Yeah. Well, well said. I don't, I don't think I could necessarily add anything to that. I think I really appreciate the way that you stated it. And so what I would like to maybe just pivot into is unpacking a few of the foundational principles of Taoism, because I think not everyone's familiar with it. And so I don't want to get too far into this conversation about how we actually deal with this chaos that we seem to find ourselves in without giving the listeners who might not have read read some of the books or spent time at the monastery some context for, for what Taoism is and, and why it might be useful during these times. So there's a piece of great news for the listeners. <laughs> I sound like one of those guys that knocks on the door and says, I got good news. Not, not that kind of good news. Have you heard the word? <laughs> heard the word. Yeah, so, so it turns out that actually our listeners have heard the word. They just don't know that they've heard the word. And so that's what we're going to fix right now. So if you are um, a fan of Star Wars, and there are so many people who are, you already know much more about Taoism than you know that you know because George Lucas took Taoist principles when he created his Star Wars universe and he set the empire against the rebels and the empire were, you know, this is all right out of Chinese history. The empire was the Confucianists who were in favor of order and, and fixed roles in society. Uh, and by the way, uh, Confucianism, you know, didn't have a death star. It was a largely beneficial thing, but it did stratify society in ways that we wouldn't consider to be too great now. It wasn't very good to women at all. Um, but it, it, you know, on the plus side, it did grease the wheels of society in China and serve as a glue to keep 
that culture alive up until basically the time of Mao. So, you know, some 5,000 years or so, making it the longest running civilization ever on planet Earth. Um, but the Taoists are, you know, are the nature-loving Jedi. Year, years ago, when my son was a little boy, he was into Legos, and he was building, like, Star Wars Legos and, you know, ships from Star Wars out of Legos and so on. And I had a student who was a 30-something-year-old guy, kind of a nerd, and he was, like, really into Star Wars, and he had built Legos as a kid. And, and I wanted my son to meet him because I thought they'd have fun talking. And so we went out to lunch, and I, I had them meet. And, you know, at one point, the, my student leans over to my little boy, he's, you know, six, seven, eight, whatever he was, and says, you know, your dad. He's the closest thing there is to a real-life Jedi master. And my, my son goes, what? And he looks up, and, I, and the student goes, yes, yes, that's why we follow him. And I'm looking over my son, mouthing, thank you, right, <laughs> the student. <laughs> but, you know, the idea of the force is taken from chi, which is a Chinese word for energy, uh, and, and, and um, the idea that, uh, we will fight with swords instead of guns and that, you know, there's this self-cultivation path to master your skills and understand the na workings of the natural world. All those things are Taoist things, which Mr. Lucas put into Star Wars in a delicious way. And and frankly, in the later Star Wars uh, movies, I, I'm not a big Star Wars guy, so I, I'm afraid I can't give, you know, all like, like what, what's, what episode it was and all that stuff. I don't know that stuff. My boy knows that stuff. But, uh, you know, there are Taoist symbols in the temples and, you know, there are yin-yang symbols. So that yin-yang symbol is a good thing to look at for a second. Uh, it's actually called the Tai Chi Tu. And uh, it shows a white fish and a black fish interlocking. Everybody knows that symbol. Um, you see it on the back of, you know, you see it on surfboards in the back of surf culture trucks and pickup trucks in California. And, you, you know, but but it's really ubiquitous. It's it's come into the culture. It's everywhere. And that uh, little uh, symbol has a white, we, we call the black and white uh, circles, we call them fish. They're not fish, but they look kind of like they have a head and a tail. And they have an eye. Uh, and, you know, the white one has a black eye and the black one has a white eye. And the idea is to show that the universe is comprised of opposing forces which harmoniously interact in a constantly changing process. And that the eye uh, of the black uh, one, the black one has a white eye and the white one has a black eye to symbol that, to, to, to convey that, you know, there's no such thing really as polar opposites. So uh, change Balance, harmony, frugality, humility, and compassion, last but not least, are hallmarks of this combination of philosophy and religion, which is kind of a world community. And you mentioned community early on. And, and it is. It's a, it's a very porous religion. So that means things flow into it and out of it easily, which is why it's been accepted around the world in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a good a good start, and and I think it outlines some of the basic pieces that maybe some people are are familiar with, um, the the yin and the yang, the duality, and being able to see you know the the dark within the light and the light within the dark, etc. I'm curious if you can unpack maybe a, a a concept or one or two of the concepts that reside within Taoism, something like Wu Wei. 
which I, with maybe a lot of people are somewhat familiar with, but then maybe we can talk about how that actually pertains to everyday life. Cause I think a lot of people hear these concepts and they're like, well, that's, it seems like a good idea in theory, but what is the actual integration and practice of some of these things and how do we start to live, live these practices? I think that's maybe a, a curious conversation. Something that people ignore about the Tai Chi too, about the yin yang symbol in their interest in understanding the two black and white and how they're, you know, how they relate to each other. What they ignore is that the symbol is a circle and that the circle that encompasses this, these two fish is part of the design. It's not a triangle. It's not just splashes of paint on something. It's a circle. And the fact that it's a circle is designed to imply motion. So the Tai Chi 2 is not actually a, a photograph of a moment. It's a movie. And it's constantly moving. So in order to appreciate Taoism and make it work for you in, in, in that sense, as a lifestyle or a belief system, if you want to go there, what you have to do is understand, first of all, that this movie applies to the way the universe works and that things are constantly changing. We touched on that a little bit and we talked about sort of trajectory. The word Tao is uh, a word that has been translated as a path or a way. It's not an entity, so it's not God, it's not a thing, but language fails this, you know, the very first line of the most famous Taoist text it says, look, um, I'm here to talk to you about this, this thing called Tao, but it's not a thing and we can't talk about it. And, and I recognize that we can't talk about it, but language is all we have. So just remember that for the next 81 chapters that I'm going to offer you of this little book, um, I'm, I'm constantly falling short because mm -hmm. of the language. And so this expression of ineffable, I'm sorry to put it into answering the question that was asking me for practical prescription, but in order, in order to be able to really get at the heart of this, you have to understand that this is as much a way of seeing things and the consequent changes in your own behavior that arise from seeing things differently mm -hmm. as it is a, a set of, of rules to read, like, the Judeo or the Abrahamic Bible, right? That that those kinds of prescriptions don't so much exist in Taoism. It's it's more of an exhortation to please see things differently, transcend the commonplace knee-jerk responses to things. And and there's a lovely phrase, Da Da Wuxing, which means the Tao is big. And we could put it in practical terms and say and say, look at your life through a zoom lens, but instead of zooming in to, I cannot get this goddamn can open right now and feeling your blood pressure uh, go higher and higher, you struggle to think, and why do they make things like this? How can, how can you have to be Hercules to open this thing? And I'm just trying to get an olive. I'm just trying to get an olive out of it. Why can't I get in? You know, and all of a sudden the entire world, everything constrains down to this little tiny, you miserable struggling with your arm and neck muscles and your wanting fingers. Take that zoom lens, look at that can, look at what you're doing and dial it way, way out till you see yourself standing by the kitchen counter and then you see your whole kitchen. 
Then you see your house. Then you see your block, your street. Then you see your city. Then you see your country. Then you see the globe, earth. And then you keep on dialing out, dialing out, dialing out, dialing out in your hyper wide view lens until you see a little blue marble hanging in the blackness. And you keep on going and keep on going until you see a whole panoply of stars. And in this process of gaining perspective on things, particularly those that have emotional moment for you, you find yourself happily detaching from that negative, from your rage, your frustration. And you find compassion arising because you realize not only is the earth one of billions of planets and not only are my little petty struggles, whether it's to get a better job or to get that girl you want or guy you want or to get that car you're after or to get a new house or on and on and on. All that stuff, look at it from this perspective of a tiny floating little speck of blue in this gigantic firmament. And so many of the practical things that you asked me about in terms of how we live and what we do, and I'll get to them in a moment, but I want to say first that they have to flow from this constant perspective retrieval, because if you don't keep checking in with that, you're going to, the practices won't do what they should do for you. And you're going to get off the rails. Does that help? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think, you know, as you were talking and just outlining some of the principles, you know, I think, I don't, I don't know if the first line roughly translates to something like the Tao that's called the Tao is not the Tao, right? The way that's called the way is not the way or some iteration of that. And I feel like as you were talking, I could see how many of the challenges that we face in today's culture and society are on the back of us ignoring this sort of basic principle, right? Everybody's got the way. Everybody's got the answer to the problems and there's competing answers and, and competing answers to the problems. And that, that seems to be a, a very, uh, that we, we've become enmeshed and, and sort of attached to these ideas of what the way forward is or what the solutions to some of the problems are that we face in our society. And I like what you're saying is that, and I love the example too, because it's sort of like this, you know, small, absurd uh, example of trying to opening a jar of olives, which all of us can recognize, right? But I think that we're trying to solve these very big problems, but in the in the small moments of our lives, we can't even zoom back, right? We can't even zoom out. And so I, I really, I really appreciate that. So maybe I'll just pause there and let you continue. I watched one of your talks. I don't remember what it was, but after you invited me on the podcast, I wanted to see who I was going to be talking to. So I before I said yes or no, I want to see who you were. So I, I looked you up and I watched you talk. And in, in this talk, you began by talking about, you know, the million and a half self-help titles that are out there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you were talking about, you know, putting your work in that context. I, I want to say that the most disturbing and malignant thing about your recap, which was accurate, I think, was the fact that we are still looking to people to solve our problems. So whether we are looking at self-help books or we're listening to a monk talking on a podcast, right? We're, we're looking for the idea, for example, that technology can solve the climate crisis. That's a particularly malignant and really ter- terrifying idea. 
the fact that we can figure out everything in the world is, you know, the fact that many scientists, not all, believe that sooner or later, whether it's through the rise of strong AI and our our agency being, you know, the purpose of humanity being only to give rise to that in the long throw of evolution and so on, that that AI will eventually wake up and understand it, itself and the universe. The, the idea that the human brain, augmented or not, through our tools or not, can in any way understand the universe and solve all our problems if we just get to it, is one of the most terrifying ideas. And I, I find it so deeply offensive because it lacks perspective and humility of the highest order. And the idea that we can figure everything out and solve everything out, not, I'm talking about as a species, never mind as individuals, right? This, this, there's a trickle down. There's also another very, very pernicious trickle down, which is the Judeo-Christian idea that we were given planet Earth to do with as we wish, that this is our toilet, our sandbox. We can crap it up and destroy it if that's what we want to do. And and the presence of myriad other sentient beings on the planet is not taken into account, nor are other belief systems in that uh, in that description. And I find that is one of the biggest problems that we have is that view of our home and and who we are. So we have a lot of profound rethinking to do which may be brought about, you know, if there if an apocalypse comes greater than COVID and we are reduced in population to 1% of what we are now and the earth is is in flames and, it, you know, it's a rock with a hot middle, so it's going to survive. It's not planet earth that's in peril. It's the world as we know it, including us, right? It, you know, if that's what it takes for us to redefine who we are, I certainly hope that's not the case. But it might be, and it has been in the past in the history of, of this planet and life. And so, you know, looking to each other for solutions instead of looking to a larger, deeper source. Um, and in the case of Taoism, we, we consider that to be nature. It is, is a terrible mistake. And when you asked me earlier about Wei Wu Wei, um, I, I came to answer your, or I, I'm, I'm arriving at answers to your questions from a perspective that, you know, sort of top down instead of bottom up. Um, or or I, I, I don't love that really. That phrase top down implies some sort of forcing in government. And actually Taoism is very bottom up. But I guess what I mean by it is from big ideas to small ideas. That's a better way of putting it. So, so Wei Wu Wei or Wu Wei is just a description of effortless living. So the, the ideal, the Taoist sage, regardless of gender or age, the Taoist sage is a person who has observed the workings of the world and seen how to go with the flow in a way that gets most, the most done with the least effort. What this does not describe is lighten up a doobie putting your feet up on the couch, on the, on the coffee table, and turning on your big screen TV as you get high all day. That's not way away, right? Why? So effortless. Why? Why not? <laughs> Why not? I feel like there's a bunch of listeners that well, are like, oh, shit. So, so, so oh, there, I've been doing there, that was there is wrong. a why. <laughs> but, you know, there is a why not, right? There is a why not. 
as as um, attractive as that option may sound. There is there is a why <laughs> there is a why not. You're making me laugh now, but I lose my train <laughs> of thought. The why not is that things aren't aren't going to get done that way. And and one argument that you might respond is to say, so what? Maybe things don't need to get done. And that's a legitimate argument because a lot of the things that we obsess over and that we think are so important that need to get done, in fact, don't need to get done. So figuring out what needs to get done and, and you know prioritizing with a clear mind with that perspective that I described earlier of the zoom lens. That's why I advanced the idea of the zoom lens first, right? Because when you dial that out, you realize that, you know, you really don't actually need to kill that spider that's lurking in the tiny cobweb in the corner of your window uh, off to the left of your TV, you know, that, that you could just leave the spider alone and nothing worse, nothing would come of it except a, li- a living thing going about its business. But there's also a thousand other things that don't need to get done. We don't need to buy into the commercial messages of corporate life and government, all of which and all of whom have an agenda for us that serves them and not us, that doesn't have to do with our benefit at all, And we can get back in touch with not buying things we don't need with money we don't have and putting ourselves in debt to create stress that makes us overeat and become obese and diabetic and hypertensive and on and on. The number of things that we need and that we need to get done is far less than our puritanical push, 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 work, work, work culture would have us believe. And anytime we feel those kinds of compulsions above and beyond when we are threatened with living under a bridge or not having enough to eat or shelter over our head, not that. That's part of being a a living organism. I'm not talking about that level of existence. And for people who are listening who are in those circumstances, then they have to do what they need to do. But a great majority of us are not, at least in this country, in that circumstance. And so the way we fabricate and torture ourselves with shoulds and musts and gotta have and gotta get and gotta do is very counter to Wei Wu Wei. Wei Wu Wei sees do the minimum you need to do, be as efficient and effective as you can and don't waste time talking and worrying about things that you either can't control or have already finished. Do the job and move on. Keep quiet, do it, move on. That being able to sit or stand quietly when nothing needs doing and being able to simply do the job, do the task and move on without sticking to it mentally or emotionally. Those are very important pieces of advice in the Taoist canon. Just this idea of being able to sit or stand still with with silence because i think one of the just going back to what we were talking about before of you know out outsourcing or, or strip mining our uh, our attention I, I recently watched this documentary called the the social dilemma and it's talking you know a lot about social media and some of the challenges that that's presenting and you know how we really are and we have created an economy that is predicated on our attention 
It's, it's built to try and garner our attention constantly. And so I'm just hoping that you can just speak to the importance of, of how, maybe not how we go about it, but the importance of that perspective shift that you were talking about that's going to allow for more of this stillness and seeing life, world, problems, our lives, our relationships from a different perspective and vantage point. There are myriad Taoist practices, which I can point to. Meditation, Qigong, Tai Chi, other Taoist martial arts like Bhagwajang, Shimichuan, Lui Bafa, and more. But without the underpinning philosophy, without the way of looking at things and understanding things, actions alone, even if they are beautiful practices like Tai Chi, which has some, you know, wonderful range of physical and mental benefits. Those things are not Taoist unless they are done from a Taoist point of view. And if, if we're doing Tai Chi and while we're doing it, we're thinking about, oh, wow. I wonder what I'm going to talk about with Connor on that podcast. And you know what? I got what kind of pizza am I going to have later? Um, wow. That cicada is so loud. That thing's like almost in my ear. Go away, you little bastard. Or, or you know, um, I, wonder what, I wonder what Trump is going to do today. Like if we, we, we start this kind of stuff while we are doing Tai Chi, then we're not doing Tai Chi because a Taoist practice is defined by the quality of your attention. And what you just said about the attention economy is one of the most, I'm going to use the word again that I've used this several times already, is one of the most malignant things that's going on right now. It's it's, it's really, really diminishing our attention span and outsourcing, turning around the process of consciousness so that instead of arising from within and moving outward, it arises and, and is impinged upon us. It comes from outside. We are relinquishing consciousness to some sort of group consciousness. It's like the hive mind in the Borg in Star Trek, right? Uh, where, where we are losing our individuality, but not in a good way. There, there's some ways in which losing individuality is not a bad thing. You know, American culture, American anti-culture is hyper-narcissistic and very self-involved compared to many other cultures. People come here from Asia, and, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, the so-called communist China because there's no, it's not nothing to do with communists. Actually, China is the most hyper-capitalistic place on planet Earth. So it's not that, but, they, but come from other cultures, let's say even other European cultures, and, and they're amazed by not only um, that, uh, Americans put sugar in hot dogs and salt in everything, but also what what we do to our minds to make everything all about us. If there were only one message that I would have our listeners take away from our chat is it's not about you, right? So you can still be an individual and a conscious, sentient, compassionate being, and I hope all of you are that but you don't have to make everything about yourself. When you are compassionate and conscious, you become part of a fabric that is much larger than you. And it is from that perspective that the usefulness and 
in indeed the value of some of the practices that we're talking about derive. Absent that reset, and I believe in some, you know, I studied evolutionary biology for years in my young life. And I've come to the conclusion that in order for us to get where we need to go next as a, as a species and on this planet, we're going to need a leap, an evolutionary leap of consciousness in the same way that we developed a thumb or we developed the ability to stand upright and gaze over the savanna grass so that we could see the lions coming. Or we developed this incredibly effective bipedal gait that allowed us to our skeleton to support us in this very, very low muscular effort fashion that made us very efficient and able to walk 30 or 40 miles a day, not run, just walk all the time. We are built to move. We are built to walk. Sitting in front of the computer all day is doing exactly the wrong thing. We were not designed for any of this. And small wonder that we have all these immunocompromised diseases. Oh, we, we have... Uh, you know, we have obesity and we have arthritis and, and uh, all the rest of it. We're, we're abusing what we are, but we're also, so that kind of thing, you know, I, I used, I coined this phrase like 10 years ago, which got, became very popular, sitting is the new smoking. Um, but, but, you know, there's another, there's another phrase, which is that, you know, our, what we've done to our minds, sort of, narcissism is the new cancer. You know, we we have become totally self-obsessed. And your questions to me about, uh, you know, the digital world and, and what um, all this technology is doing to us is it is forcing that malignancy. It's creating that mm -hmm. idea that it's all about us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really potent. I think what you're saying is, is quite poignant and I mean, I feel like we could talk for a while about this conversation, but I want to be respectful of your time. And so maybe just with this in mind, with what you were just talking about, um, maybe we'll end off with, with this, which is, you know, you, you, in, in your, in one of your books, uh, the mad monk manifesto, you talk about this concept of understanding. And I feel like this maybe is a, a, a potent way to end our conversation is maybe if, if you could talk about understanding and and what that means for you and, and what it might look like for people to cultivate this um, or if there's anything else that you wanted to add in I just want you to have the freedom to to put that in as well let's um, let's be ruled by compassion let's be guided by compassion better word than rule Let's be guided by compassion. Let's say that the compassionate urge will take us out of ourselves in the necessary way. And that the evolutionary leap that is uh, that I mentioned earlier, this saltatory, the jumping nature of evolution is evident in the fossil record. Things appear suddenly. And that means that phenotypically, in terms of the way a gene is expressed, blue eyes, you know, the phenotypic, the exterior expression of something is the result of lots of interior things on genes that we don't see in the fossil record. We don't see the genes. We just see that the result of all the changes in the genes that suddenly they, they come together to produce this change. We suddenly have a bigger brain or we suddenly have language. 
So the evolutionary leap that I'm talking about can be achieved by the accumulated changes in our individual conscience, consciousness brought together on the large, on sort of the species scale. So, you know, the obsession with tribalism, with our tribes, marketers on the internet talk about finding your tribe, you know, find your tribe, you'll get, you get more listeners, you get more viewers, you get more people to buy your newsletter, your books or whatever it is, your stuff. Um, this is a, is a good concept for marketing, but it's not a good concept for human consciousness. And the more we are concerned with tribes, with national borders, with races, with intelligence, with looks, with appearance, with this and that and that, all that stuff that divides is standing in the way of this spontaneous evolutionary change. So you can ask yourself any of these things that you think about that I just listed. If in your own life they divide, they divide you in your own feelings and thoughts and they divide you and separate you from others. And from a Taoist perspective and from the perspective of this Taoist monk, that's not the path that you want. Wonderful. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really uh, wish that we had sort of a, a two-hour conversation. So uh, I might have to have you back on the show if you're up for it at some point, because this has been... Happy to do it. I enjoyed the chat too. Um, I, I do believe, as a sign-off, I should say, that I really do believe very much in the power of story. And I believe that you know stories are what we tell ourselves about ourselves. We define ourselves through the stories of our lives that we run in our own heads and that we share with others and others do that with us. So our sharing of story, you asked me to, you know, first thing you asked me to do is, is tell a story. So you obviously recognize this. So, you know, my books are full of story. My um, the preponderance of my oeuvre is fiction. And I have a new one that just came out as the same week that we're recording this called Mistress Meow. I hope people will check it out on Amazon. M-I-A-O, not M-E-O-W, meow in the Chinese way. Mad Monk Manifesto, which you mentioned. Turtle Planet, in which I take spiritual journeys and use turtles to be mentors and teachers, which is a book that's getting a bunch of play right now. People are liking it. So anyway, lots more to read. Um, that That's where I do my best work. So I hope you'll share some of that with me. Absolutely wonderful. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. Uh, and then if people want to follow along with you and, and the work that you're doing, uh, what what website? I mean, we'll have that in the show notes as well, but just in case they're listening right now and, and want to uh, go and search you up, where can they find you? So uh, my website is monkyunro.com, but it's also Storyteller Monk, which is easier to spell and remember. Uh, Storyteller Monk will, will get you uh, to me. Uh, on Twitter, I just put up a new Twitter page to talk just about nature and spiritual things that have to do with nature. Um, it's Turtle Planet, which is also the name of my a recent book. I'm on Facebook as, as Monk Yun Ro, Y-U-N, new word, R-O-W, Y-U-N, wow, misspelled my own name. So many times I've been telling people how to pronounce it now. I'm right, right. <laughs> Y-U-N-R-O-U. And uh, uh, let's see, uh, Facebook, uh, I'm on Instagram uh, as Monk Yun Ro. Uh, anyway, you can find all, all kinds of things there. 
Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining me. And for everyone that's out there listening, definitely go and follow along on Yun Ro's journey. And uh, hopefully we'll have him back on the show soon. Uh, don't forget to, to share this episode with somebody that you know is going to enjoy the conversation and benefit from it. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.